Hi everyone, welcome to Articulate, the podcast for artists with artists series 2. Today I'm happy to start off the series with my conversation with Dr. Nimi Hutnik. Nimi is an artist and a senior cognitive behavior therapist based in London who helps people suffering from anxiety, stress and depression. After teaching for many years in the prestigious Lady Sridham College in Delhi, Nimi won a Commonwealth Staff Fellowship to finish her DPhil from Oxford University, after which she returned to India and taught for 14 years at LSR and then emigrated to the UK in 1999. She then went on to do her master's in painting from the Wimbledon College of Art in uh, 2019, where I was lucky to see her degree show installation and I have, have been wanting to chat with her since. She has exhibited widely with group and solo shows and her drawing was exhibited at the Trinity Boy Wharf Drawing Prize Exhibition in 2019. And her triptych drawing, Burnout, was selected and exhibited by the Bloomberg New Contemporaries Exhibition this year. As a trained psychologist, Nimi focuses on the human states of mind such as angst, angst grief, love and resilience, and blends them with the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi, which is a call to the return to the principles of simplicity, appreciation of the value of the unadorned everyday objects, to see beauty in the quotidian, to create a vibrant range of gestural drawings that captures the mood, the movement of objects and spaces with a perfect mix of composition, line and value. She's interested in the theme of transformation, looking at how people recover from adversity and has also written a book titled Becoming Resilient. She's currently working on a video installation, using her experiences to create a visual landscape that documents the everyday life of a woman in her 60s living in the UK today. She has written a blog for the New Contemporaries website called Whoever Has Heard of a 66-Year-Old Emerging Artist. So I'm delighted to present Nimi Hutnik to you. Hello, Nimi. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. I'm so thrilled. And this is series two, and I'm very happy to have you as my uh, first guest. <laughs> How are you? It's lovely to be here, Divya. Thank you for inviting me. I remember our first meeting was at Wimbledon in the uh, technician's room with Ursula. <laughs> and I, I, I'm also happy to see a familiar face, and I'm very happy to have you on my podcast. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. And I just want to... A pay a tribute to Uma. She was just absolutely great. And um, I think I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. Nimi, I mean, you have such a accomplished, I mean, your CV is just uh, amazing to read the kind of stuff that you've done. And th there's not enough time <laughs> in the world to literally, literally talk about everything. But let's start off from the beginning and talk about your influences growing up and um, uh, where you actually, you know, where you grew up and which city and visit in India or outside. So just to give context to um, well, how you have, you know, presented yourself today. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's funny because my early childhood was very much a cosmopolitan childhood. My father was traveling around. He was, um, he was part of the Indian Foreign Service. Right. So he was a diplomat uh, traveling around the world. And of course, we were traveling with him. Mm. So every years we get up and move. And um, so I was, I had visited quite a number of countries by the, uh, you know, by the time I was uh, 11. 
And that was the first time I actually touched base in India and started schooling in India. Wow. And uh, that was oh. in Delhi, is it? Right. Um, I had a brief stint in um, Kerala because my dad suddenly realized he had some very westernized children <laughs> and he who didn't know how to speak Malayalam and things like that. So he chucked us into the boarding school in order to pick up Malayalam. I see. And that was a bit difficult for us because we were right from Canada coming into Kerala. So he brought us back to Delhi. Mm. I mean, I think the boarding school also... Um, it was it's quite a difficult thing being separated from your parents and it's 2500 miles away you know? I know and 11 years so, is not an age to I mean suddenly be separated from your parents I suppose exactly exactly so they brought us back thank goodness after about four years oh your four years to, you spent at boarding school is sorry, it? no sorry I was wrong not four years four months four months oh, I, I was about that yeah and um and um yeah, so it's four months and then um, back to, well, to New Delhi for the first time. And I studied at the Convent of Jesus in Mary and was brought up um, in terms of education by Irish nuns mm. uh, in, in Delhi. And then, of course, I did my um, bachelor's degree from Lady Shiram College, my master's from Lady Shiram College, and then went... Um, went to Oxford after teaching for five years at Lady Shriram. So uh, why did you take up psychology as your uh, career? I think, you know, so many therapists are wounded healers, um, uh, Divya. I um, was very aware of some of the wounds that I was carrying um, from my early childhood. Um, and I think because of that curiosity of how to actually... Um, uh, live a, a happy life, you know, I, I think I took up psychology because I was really motivated to, to heal my own wounds, I think. Right, right. So that's one of the reasons behind taking up psychology. I've never regretted it. Right, right. It's fantastic. So how was the experience? I know that um, for people who are unaware um, of Lady Sriram College, one of the most prestigious colleges in India, um, and uh, and the fact that you studied there and you taught there, how was that experience? And um, do you miss that? I I loved Lady Sriram College. The students were just wonderful, mm. and. I, when I came here and started teaching at various universities, I really missed the uh, LSR kind of ethos. And uh, I don't know, I had a, an equation with the students which was very uh, good. And I don't think I ever had that kind of equation with students here in Britain. Uh -huh. But uh, I think it's a diff different way of looking at academia. Uh, and I had to adjust to to being a, a colored woman, mm. you know, in in Britain mm -hmm. with all the types that that carries, I suppose, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, how did that transition happen? You said that you taught in LSR and then you got a scholarship. Isn't that right? To go to the Oxford University to do a DPhil. How did that come about? And and I know that you um, your, your project was on... Um, uh, being a colored woman in in the UK, so uh, would would you mind explaining that a little more? It seems so interesting. Well, you know, um, 
uh, um, I, I can make sense of it now. I applied for that Commonwealth Academic Staff Fellowship three times. Mm-hmm. And and um, my current supervisor, you know, all of, all of us therapists need to have a supervisor. Right. In England, really important that our work is, is um, supervised so that our clients are getting the best quality work. My supervisor said, has often said to me, you learn nothing except through failure. Right. And uh, so that failure, somehow that, that persistence and that resilience and that having to get up and start again and feel really discouraged and then trying again the next year and trying again the third year. And finally, I got it, which was just um, wonderful in the end. And that was an opening to a whole new world, shall we say. So did you have to choose your project so, beforehand when you applied to the um, fellowship, right? So applying for a PhD, I mean, it, they, was, they were funding me for a doctorate mm. at Oxford University. Mm. In Oxford, it's called a PhD, right. um, and uh, normally we call it a PhD. Yeah, you have to write a proposal and, and uh, all of that. And I was just interested in race relations and uh, interested in... Um, what it might feel like being a colored woman in Britain. And, you know, at that time when I did this uh, DPhil, it was in the 80s. Wow. And uh, in the 80s, it, the race relations were very unequal. Yeah. And I, I wanted to do something about that. Um, so it was only the tiniest birth of multiculturalism coming up at that time. Mm. And my thesis was propounding pluralism, you know, it was uh, propounding acceptance of uh, the riches of minority identity and it was and quite ahead of its time considering it, it was the 80s isn't it yeah it was ahead of the its time mm. at that time mm. so um it was a very very satisfying experience so yeah. then after the um defil you got back to india and you taught in lsr again for the next 14 years so uh, how how did you decide to move to the UK after that? Well, um, it's a strange story because um, uh, LSR, I had signed a bond with LSR. And I'm a person, I find it very difficult to break commitments, or at least at that time, I found it really difficult to break commitments. I sometimes wonder if I if I'd done something differently, whether my career would have been different. But um, I had signed a bond with LSR, and uh, the bond said that I would have to come back and teach for three years. Right. And of course, when I came back and taught for three years, I loved it so much that I just continued, continued to teach for the next 14 years. You know, I mean, for the next uh, uh, 11 years, you know, right. so altogether 14 years. And um, then LSR was offering... Um, uh, a scheme at that time in the universities there was this voluntary retirement you could you could take voluntary retirement after 20 years of teaching and i had completed 20 years of teaching mm. and i really wanted to do something differently mm. and so i took voluntary retirement and i started my journey in art seriously right at that point mm -hmm. so i i went to the vasundra tiwari school of art in Vasant Bihar and uh, I did a whole series of workshops and training with a guy called Rajesh Sharma and I'm really grateful to him for for you know just opening my eyes to how to paint and that kind of thing. Amazing. And uh, my career had kind of 
you know, come to a plateau. Um, and so I thought I would really be interested in a change. Mm. And I guess at that point, um, uh, I decided to risk things and I came to Britain. Right. And, and that's where I've been ever since, really. Um, I didn't realize how much I was upping the ante at that time. Mm, mm. I didn't get a job, even with a, an Oxford degree, I didn't get a, a permanent job for two years. Right. And that, that was really tough. But I did finally get a permanent job as a part-time lecturer, having been a reader, mm. um, job as a part-time lecturer at Roehampton University. Right. And uh, finally started rebuilding a career almost from scratch. Amazing. So, um, I mean, considering that you've been, you know, you, you went for this um, course in Basant Vihar for art. So how did art feature into your career plans? I know that you it's as important as anything else for you. So why do you think of um, becoming proficient in, in, in a creative pursuit? Well, first of all, I, um, I, you know, when I was 16, there was, I don't know whether you remember, but there used to be this gap between O-levels and the start of uh, uni. Mm. So the O-levels finished in December and university only started in uh, August. Right. So there was that, month gap and, and during that eight months I, I just painted and painted and painted my next door neighbor was an artist right and I would go to her art, art classes and painted at the age of 16 then of course when the kids were born and that kind of thing everything went underground mm. for, for a long while mm. you know and so I've always felt a bit insecure about my abilities as an artist I felt uncertain about whether I'm doing anything of any use at all and so I um, applied for the MA having a portfolio of previous work which and I went through the interview and everything mm -hmm. and I applied for MA and got in I was delighted mm -hmm. and I think the MA has given me some confidence you know it really has given me some confidence that may be my own issues about not knowing the goodness of myself, you know, <laughs> wanting that external uh, approval or whatever. But that's what I carry and that's, and that's why I did the MA, I think, just to prove to myself that I was as good as anybody else as an mm. artist, mm -hmm -hmm. you know. Well, you know, um, psychology, especially when you're teaching it, is a very left brain activity. Mm. And um, uh, in 1995, I discovered this book called Drawing on the Right Side of Your Brain. Right. And uh, Betty Edwards talks about the difference between left brain and right brain. Mm. And she enabled me to make that shift between left brain and right brain. And I found that shift to be just glorious. It was ecstatic to be able to be in the right brain as one is painting or as one is creating. Mm. So in my career in psychology was um, too left brain. Mm. And this side of my brain was not being developed mm. enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's quite a lot of right brain activity in terms of being a therapist, yeah. you know? Yeah. But um, I, I just discovered that wonderful sense of flow and energy uh, in art and that's why I really wanted to pursue art wonderful to 
much favor, you know, just to have that whole brain working, you know. Yeah, I mean, I know of uh, friends who are psychologists and they feel it's quite restrictive. You can't, there's so many rules when you're a therapist, you can't really talk too much, you can't help them too much. You have to control your own impulses in trying to um, help the person that you're trying to help, isn't it? So it probably kind of liberates you if you, with your art to kind of um, make up for all that control that you have to be as a, have to have as a therapist, maybe. In, in India, it's not quite so regulated, mm. but in the, in the UK, there are professional boundaries that need to be um, maintained. And so, yes, um, I often feel a lot of empathy for my clients and um, it's not really acceptable to reach out and touch and, you know, that kind of thing. So it just flows out onto my canvases. Absolutely. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So um, I'm always interested in ambition in women. You know, for me, like um, it's even now in this day and age, um, women who are ambitious or who show that they want to do something more than, um, uh, you know, everyday things is looked upon with a lot of skepticism, a lot of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, suspicion more than, so I just wanted to know what, how do you wear your ambition as in what drives you to push yourself out of the comfort zone? What makes you, um, uh, I, I know you must have done a lot of sacrifices to come to where you are right now. I mean, it's not easy to just up up it and go out to another country, do your uh, defil, come back and then leave the country and go back to the UK and start from scratch. So there's something else which is driving you to do this. So in, in terms of yourself and also uh, generically, what do you think of ambition in women and, um, and is it good? And um, what do you, what is the advice you would give younger women? Yeah, I think ambition is um, a hard word for me, you know. Um, even though I think other people might see me as ambitious, I don't see myself as particularly ambitious. Um, uh, I don't do the networking stuff. I don't, I don't go and sidle up to people and try to push my, you know, um, my work in this direction or that direction. It seems to happen because I'm living from the center of my soul. Mm. I'm from a place of choicefulness, right? Which, um, which is the thing that motivates me, you know. So the doctorate came from a place of choicefulness, and the art comes from a place of choicefulness. It's it's really living from the center of my soul, and if there is success, then I'm really happy. So that's the thing. So in spite of having um, um, encountered failures and mistakes, you decided to kind of um, go to power through it. That must be coming from somewhere, isn't it? That you want to kind of achieve something. And I really admire yeah. that. I really admire that in women because that's what, once you reach a certain age, oh, what is the point? You should have done it when you were younger. There's no need to do it now. Take care of your kids. Take care of your family. And for me, I need so much more. Yeah, kids and family is fine, but I need to do something for myself. And I don't know, maybe leave a legacy or just for the moment to achieve the, um, fulfill your potential, like they say. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, um, and it's really interesting because a lot of, Indian women, um, you know, 
are breaking out of the stereotype that their whole identity is wrapped up in their children. Mm. So, I mean, if you if we if we're talking in stereotypes for just a little bit, sometimes people who whose identity is completely wrapped up in the family and children um, often uh, experience an identity crisis when the children are growing up and no longer need them in the same way. Exactly. You know. I know. I know. And so that identity crisis, which should have happened, maybe at least according to Western psychologists, should have happened when you're an adolescent, actually happens quite often in Indian women in when the fifties, you know, when when the kids are um, uh, well settled and or or at least well on the way to being settled. Yeah. And then and then women will ask themselves, "Well, who am I? Yeah. You know." <laughs> What am I doing here? Mm. And, and then it's a, it's a great opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity to discover who you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and it, so it, start from scratch. You don't have to be an expert by the time you're 50. You can still start something in your... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and try and uh, take it forward from there. I think it's, uh, it's so important to be open and vulnerable and open to mistake ma- making and um, falling on your face and getting up again. Like you would have done when you were younger, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, another question I had was about how you mix your experience as a teacher and a psychologist and a, and a therapist with, do you, do you kind of feed into uh, each other? Does your art feed into your work? Does your work as a psychologist feed into your art? Is there a, a, a meeting point at some, at some place in, which shows in your art? Um, there's definitely a meeting point. Mm. Um, uh, I think with every client I see, I encourage them by towards the end of therapy to get creative. Mm. Because when you're creative, you can't be depressed. I mean, you can be frustrated, but when those creative juices are flowing and when you're in flow, it's very hard to be depressed. Yeah. So usually by the end of therapy, people have discovered their resilience and then I push them on to something further, you know, okay, how can you release those flow energies? How can you release those creative energies? Right. So that I think has been very important to me and I pass that on to my clients. And then of course in my art, I can't escape the psychology because obviously... You know, I'm painting my clients' um, uh, experiences of tiredness and exhaustion. I mean, burnout is all about uh, living um, a professional life in London. Mm. It's kind of relentless, you yeah. know, and it's just you, you go from pillar to post and um, from one meeting to the next, from one email to the next, and it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people can't cope with it, and they come into my clinic, mm. and um, and they huh, mm-hmm. they have to find a way of you know managing the stress that they're under, and so the burnout triptych is very much about that. So when I saw your installation in the degree show, it was so calming. That's what I told Uma also. You when you hear it on the headphones and you're seeing that the video, it's like it. 
completely like you forget about your yourself and i was just watching you do those the motions of doing the drawings the 6am drawings and then getting through the day having your cup of coffee and your cat in the corner <laughs> that itself is so calming to look at so uh, i totally understand you know uh, what you're trying to do with your art trying to um be an example for your clients probably yeah and um and how do you um let's talk about your 6am drawings how do you divide your day as an artist and as a practitioner is there a, a, a very disciplined kind of schedule that you follow well if we're talking about my 6am drawings yeah. i do get up early in the morning mm. uh and i start my 6am drawings i find them almost like a meditative experience right. you know it centers me down it it stills my soul and i uh, you know those creative energies are released so I don't you have do an idea med- about what you will do or it just kind of you channel the kind of cosmos kind of thing <laughs> channel the cosmos i like that it it kind of uh, the way i put it you know it's a little bit of a buddhist concept i i face an empty sketchbook page as my canvas if you like and i wait for an image to emerge you know Mm. But that's not to say that on the previous day I might not be thinking a little bit about what I might be uh, painting the next day. So you look you know? forward so to it. Oh, I have to get up and do. Yeah. You know? Nice. But I find them uh, time just wonderful. But the way after the 6am thing I do my yoga and then um I I have a sort of meditative prayer time as well. And um I divide my working week into 3 days client work and 4 days art work. Right, 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 right. So I hardly do any art on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Mhm. And then I don't do any client work on Fridays, Saturdays, Sunday, Monday. But the 6 a.m. drawings are every day or is that only on Tuesday? Yeah, every day. Oh, wow. you know what? I have to confess that most days shall we say, not <laughs> every day, but most the kind of addictive experience so i love it they are wonderful know? they're so spontaneous and the fact that you use everyday objects like you know sharpies and um felt pens and you, you just use a sketchbook it's so it's again liberating and and it shows the fact that it's just you know whatever is it's coming from that moment and um i love it i really like that thank you thank you so much so you talk about um spirituality and yoga and prayer so how um important is religion for you is um i know that many of your works um drawings um, refers to you know christianity and probably your influences growing up with um irish nuns so uh do you uh, are you a practicing um christian and how important is that okay so um uh I would say I'm not religious mm. but I'm spiritual. You know there's this category spiritual but not religious. I really would put myself in that bracket because I think religion really divides. Mm. Where is spirituality unites, you know? In spirituality you look for the common ground between people regardless of what their group identity is. Yeah. It kind of trumps a group identity. Absolutely. And I that's that's why i'm unafraid to incorporate buddhist elements i'm unafraid to incorporate hindu elements and i was born um, a syrian christian from kerala 
Ah, I see. Okay. You see, I did have a little bit of a conversion experience when I was 16. And uh, so my something came alive at that point. And uh, my mother used to say, it's just a phase, it'll pass, this mm. and that. But actually, it hasn't passed. And I'm, I just have this deep love for God, the universe. You know, like Rabindranath Tagore mentioned in his Gitanjali, it's that kind of personal yeah, relationship. Uh, attachment to God, mm. you know, which is very much part of me. Wonderful. <laughs> I like it's the way you put it. very fashionable in UK to talk about this, I have to say. Yeah, but again, it's it's not religion that you're saying. You're talking about just having a relationship with a higher energy or higher spirit. Yeah, so... Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, um, I know that uh, Japan is of a big uh, influence to you and you talk about wabi-sabi and you talk about your experiences trying to find wabi-sabi in Japan, which you did not. What is it, why, what is it that you're looking for and why is it so important to you, wabi-sabi? What is wabi-sabi? I know it's about simplicity and everyday objects and finding value in them. But why did you have to travel to Japan to look for it? I think because it was originally a Japanese concept. Mm. So um, the story goes in the 15th century, there was a chap called Senno, uh, Senno Rikyu. Mm. Um, and he was, a, he was a Zen Buddhist monk, mm. right? And he was uh, working in the employment of a, a chap called General Hideyoshi. Right. And um, uh, at that time, the Japanese tea ceremony, which is what I do in my video, the Japanese tea ceremony had become the monopoly of the rich. So, you know, Hideyoshi would bring out all these wonderful gold lace tea utensils and... Um, it had become a ritual that could only be performed if you were very wealthy in the most wonderful, elaborate, elegant China. Okay. And Sekou Rikyu was saying, actually, this is a, uh, this is a, a practice of meditation. Mm. It's, you know, that whole um, uh, ceremony of turning the tea this way and turning the tea that way with certain... It's meant to be a kind of practice of bringing yourself into the now, into the present moment. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and he said that this should be the um, this should be available to everybody, regardless of who your caste, creed, you know, um, your wealth, your status. Yeah. So he acquired a very big following by using tea uh, ceremony um, utensils, mm. which were just locally made. Mm hmm. So these locally made utensils meant that this tea ceremony became available to X, Y, and Z, everybody on the street. And right. so he, he acquired a very big following. Hideyoshi did not like this. Mm. Hideyoshi became jealous. And, and he asked um, uh, Senno Rikyu to, to commit harakiri, to, to give up his beliefs or to commit harakiri. In other words, to revoke his aesthetic, mm. which was kind of rust, rustic, mm. you know. And uh, Hideyoshi um, said, well, you know, either you stay with these beliefs or you commit suicide. You know, you can't, uh, you commit suicide or you, or you give up your beliefs. Mm -hmm. That's what he was saying. Right. So you went to Japan and you, did you stay there for long? Did you travel across the country or how was your experience there? I stayed there for 10 days. It's not long enough, mm. but you know, sometimes we can only get small pieces yeah. of time. Yeah. 
I was in the middle of my course oh. and literally arrived back, I think, on the uh, 12th and on the 14th, I was doing a presentation on Wabi Sabi to my course for my module three. Okay, you know? nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I literally had to pack everything into 10 But at days. least you had that experience of 10 days. Like Now, I mean, I can't even think of traveling at all with this lockdown. And stuff. No, of course, indeed. And uh, tell us about your book. That's another thing. That resilience is such an important thing to, to, to develop. It's like a muscle that you have to um, keep working on. It's not something that you're born with. And it's so difficult to convince people who are having issues mentally, you know, issues in their lives whether it's because of depression or because of circumstances and um, how 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 did you how did this book come up come about and is it autobiographical did you learn talk about your own experiences or um, or through your learnings as a practitioner um this book came up because harper collins commissioned me to write it mm-hmm. there's no cognitive behavior therapy book in india written by an indian author as far as Amazing. i know maybe it's changed the book is the book was published in 2017 you know um so it was commissioned um and as part of as as an academic it's important to write books mm. so you know i thought it is a, a wonderful opportunity to combine the responsibilities of my lectureship at um, at um, London South Bank University right. with writing a book. Um, and of course, I had um, come into contact with a very famous cognitive behavior therapist called Christine Podesky, mm. whose work was on resilience mm. and doing some of, uh, research on her model of resilience. Mm-hmm. And then I developed my own model of resilience based on her model of resilience. Wow. And then, you know. I see. So can you give us a small like snippet about what it is that you let people um, know about how to practice this? That is such a difficult thing to do. Um, but basically, one of the one of the ideas behind resilience is that um, you know, look at the difference between um, a glass ball and a rubber ball. Yeah, if you throw the glass ball down on the ground, it shatters. Mm. If you throw rubber ball down on the ground, it bounces back. Right. So that's the difference between fragility and flourishing, shall we say? The ability to actually bounce back quickly from the necessary suffering that we have in life. Mm. We have a certain amount of necessary suffering. All of us go through really difficult periods sometimes. Mm. But it's a question how we respond to it is it becomes the important issue. What can we do to actually become resilient? You know, uh, how can we actually bounce back? And the whole book is about that, really. But what I find most difficult is that people are unable to stand outside of themselves, remove themselves from their own problems and look th- look at themselves from the outside and say you should do that because it's 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 hard isn't it once you're in something to really detach yourself from your own set of um life problems that you have is that something that you also talk about how to um start yeah, from the beginning much. yeah because um one of the um one of the diagrams that i created was the face diagram which basically looks at your your thoughts and how they 
um, affect your emotions and how they affect your physical sensations and how they affect your behavior. Um, but so the nose is the thoughts, the right eye is the emotions, the left eye is the physical sensations, and the behavior is the mouth. Mm. But right middle of the forehead, I place the third eye, mm-hmm. which Krishnamurti says, and which is so much part of Hindu, yeah. uh, you know, um, philosophy. philosophy. Yeah. yeah, and that is that the third eye can detach oneself and observe oneself having one's life mm-hmm. and can either pronounce very bad judgments like very ruminative or self-attacking thoughts or can become a friendly third eye a self-compassionate third eye yeah and the book is about learning to uh, to change those ruminative self-attacking thoughts into the compassionate uh, friendly third that's eye that's so important yeah. to get rid of negative thoughts how to change that into a positive Oh my God. And how do you get this book on? And is it available in all the bookstores? called Becoming Resilient, mm-hmm. Cognitive Behavior Therapy to Change Your Life. Okay. And it's by heart and it's available on Amazon. Tell us about the, the, the highlight of new contemporaries, Bloomberg New Contemporaries. How did that come about? How uh, excited is it, are you? And um, did you even expect something? Is this the first time that you applied to this competition? No, I applied to it the first time uh, when I was um, uh, doing, you know, you're allowed to apply for this in your final year yeah. or in the year, only two chances you get. I know, I know. And they didn't even look at me the first time around and rightly so, because I don't think my my art was developed at that time, mm. you know. But um, the second time round, I did apply and I was just gobsmacked, frankly. <laughs> I was just so thrilled, so taken aback. I don't quite know how I'm there because the other people on that website are just so incredible in terms of artists. You are very modest. And, and it, yeah. you have two rounds, isn't it? You have the first round that you're selected, then you go through an interview process and then there's another shortlist. We had to put our work in and then they they did a, they did a recce and then they shortlisted people. Then they you're told that you're shortlisted. Then you have to write a few things, I think. Ah, okay. And and then uh, they came and collected the work. There were fifteen hundred artists apparently, and something like seven thousand five hundred works of art. Mm-hmm. To seven thousand five hundred, everybody was allowed to put in five. So if you multiply fifteen hundred by five, it's about seven thousand. Mm-hmm. Utterly uh, taken aback. This is so no, prestigious. No, no, no. In fact, uh, Chantal Joff, you know, she's an artist. Of course, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. British New Contemporaries website yeah. for our listeners. Yeah. She says it's what happens after art school that becomes the important art. I think that's really important because I'm now taking my art in all sorts of different directions. Nice. I'm not being I'm not being looked over my shoulder by uh, by people who really know about art, you know. So, nice. so I'm just uh, going along. So this exhibition is happening in, in December now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, but if there is an online platform for our listeners here. Yeah. If they go on to NC2020 website yeah. and look at the artists, mm. you'll find me and you'll find three, 36 other artists. Other artists yeah. Maybe you can give uh, people the link. Of course, that that's going to happen. I'm yeah. going to give along with this um, podcast link. And um, finally, um, talking about the BNC, the New Contemporaries website and blog, the blog that you wrote was so interesting about whoever heard of a 66 year old artist so how do you wear your age 
what do you think about um being an artist at this point in your life and um what is the advice you would give for younger people who who are having problems you know growing older do you do you find yourself being restricted kind of um bear it proudly i think um at one point i used to try to hide how old i was um partly because i think i'm very aware of ages prejudice yes yes um even in the uk not not just in india in in the uk you know there's a lot of ages prejudice uh, i mean i know that from from the fact that so many of my clients when they get redundant made redundant at the age of 55 they can never find a new job because nobody yeah. will employ them you know so i'm i'm very aware aware of that kind of prejudice but actually when i started really thinking about my life and thinking about who i am i decided to own my age mm i decided to acknowledge that i am 66 i am not 26 you know most of my contemporaries in the bnc 2020 are in their 20s yeah you know yeah and i'm 66 and that brings another kind of perspective on art isn't it, it brings a, a wealth of experience behind it yeah you know so i feel I guess, art is based on the young anyways <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's all about your life experience that is behind you i'm really enthusiastic about it my two my two girls they're 29 and 33 now so they're still like babies to me but um, they're both very much into art you know nice and uh, yeah we have a very interesting conversation around the dining table a lot of the time the two girls and my son in law who's uh, you know who's an architect um we have very interesting conversations nice. around that so so my message i suppose to um to to people who are middle aged is um really ask yourself how would you like to spend your life you know mm. you have maybe 30 or 40 years left how would you really like to look back on your life and and um you know what would give you a sense of um pride about your life yeah. and if you ask yourself that question you project yourself from 50 to 75 or 50 to 85 how would you really like to spend your life i think asking yourself that question becomes really critical yeah. um for people who are middle aged and for young people well you know you need to just break your stereotypes of what it feels like to be 66 <laughs> if you have any you might not have any i've got some very good friends who are 26 and early 30 even me from yeah. my art course you yeah. know yeah. and we meet regularly we have dinner together the age is not an issue yeah you know yeah but of course i have my own uh, concerns about aging my my body is much more uh, less flexible than it was before I mean for for a few years I I uh, lost the ability to sit cross-legged on the floor mm. which was in India I used to do all the time yeah yeah but I've now retaught myself mhm through yoga right uh, you know to 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 get a little bit of that flexibility back so you have these aging concerns you know you have these concerns and about um that losing flexibility and that kind of thing 
gosh, I, I have a lot to learn as far as that is concerned. To own your age is something I haven't done yet. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but it's such an uh, inspiring, uh, it, it was amazing when I saw your uh, CV curriculum meeting about how much you've done and how much you've achieved. And now you've, you've found success in your art, which is um, which is such an inspiration. Live from the center of your soul. Live from the center of your, that should be the motto, I think. It was uh, such a scintillating conversation. Thank you so much, Nimi. I'm wishing you all the best for your exhibition and post-lockdown work. Thank you so much again. And uh, you're welcome. Hope to see you're you very sometime. Well.